0: Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. If people wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is?
1: We all show some form of valor.
0: Common people doing uncommon things.
1: Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They laid down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your life? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that
0: freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people
1: like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this
0: experiment that we call the United States of America.
2: We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values.
0: We can continue to make this world a much, much better place.
1: On 9-11-2020, we are honored to release a special conversation of the American Valor podcast in honor of the lives impacted on 9-11. We remember the nearly 3,000 lives that were tragically lost and all of those individuals impacted on 9-11-2001 and the 19 years since. We welcome to the American Valor podcast by Zoom, somebody who is high above the ground in the World Trade Center South Tower on 9-11, and Mr. Brian Clark. Mr. Clark is a retired executive vice president at Eurobrokers, and one of only four people to escape from a floor on or above the impact zones on that day. It is a unique story he will share and a firsthand account of that day with several lessons to be learned and lived. Mr. Brian Clark, welcome to the American Valor podcast.
2: Good day to you. Glad to be here.
1: Please tell us about yourself and your company, Eurobrokers.
2: I um, I was born and raised in Toronto and uh, married my high school sweetheart, um, had a couple of children in uh, in the Toronto area. And then in 1974, when I had been working for a small brokerage firm for nearly three years, uh, the decision was made that we would move all 10 people in the company uh, to New York City because that's where our business would expand, we thought. So we moved offices from Toronto to the World Trade Center, 10 families, or some of them were single still, but 10 individuals and associated families moved to uh, bedroom communities or Manhattan around uh, New York City. and. Um, We were the first tenants of a certain floor in the World Trade Center in July of 74. I worked for that company um, for the rest of my career until I retired in 2006. Um, The 10 of us that moved from Toronto grew the company to over 800 people at our peak. Um, That included new offices in London, England, and Tokyo, and so on. Our business was, capital markets. We we brokered financial transactions between large financial institutions. So our customer base were the the large banks, the large insurance companies, the large investment dealers, about 300 of the largest financial institutions in the world and their various branches. So even though, let's pick a bank, uh, you know, Bank of America was one of our customers, but it wasn't just their head office. It was also their office in in London, their office in Tokyo and so on, because they all traded their own books. And um, we got paid a, a, a tiny commission, the, uh, the firm, when I say tiny commission, uh, not the individuals, but the kind of volume that got done was rather remarkable compared to what the public might know because it was a wholesale market. We didn't talk to retail customers. Um, we got paid 50 cents per million dollars per day that traded. So a hundred million dollar transaction between bank A and bank B for one day would just generate a commission of $50 to the buyer and $50 to the seller on a hundred million dollar transaction. So the volumes were substantial, but I, I will tell you that, uh, even though it was a pressure packed business, we had a lot of fun doing it. We all loved it. And, uh, I look forward to going to work every day. Um, we were, uh, We were there for the 1993 bombing, and uh, that was an experience in itself. We had to move offices after that happened, and it was at that time that we moved to the 84th floor of the South Tower. We had been on the 31st floor of the North Tower prior to that, but uh, up we went to the 84th floor, and were happily working at our our business when that fateful day came along.
0: What was the environment like look, working in the World Trade Center?
2: We got quite used to being on a floor like the 84th floor. I mean, guests would come and say, oh my, you know, they would go to the windows and, you know, they could see forever, that sort of thing. We didn't notice after a while. It sort of, you take it all for granted. Um, one thing I can tell you that is was actually part of my 9-11 story, um, we got used to the you know, on a windy day, you could feel the building sway a little bit, but that was normal for us. We we knew the building was built for that. Um, when I say a little bit, I mean uh, you know a couple of inches. You could see. I'm kind of funny, but you could you could see the the, the water in the toilet bowl. Uh, you know, not slosh exactly, but move from side to side, or the the um, Levelure blinds in each of the windows which were in every window of the world trade center they were supplied by the the uh, the building owners uh, it wasn't something we had to purchase but those those blinds where you, you twirl the the stick and you know they they move up and down that sort of thing well these these windows would would slide to one side they go click against the wall and then the building would sway an inch or two and click to the other side we just got used to it and didn't notice it but uh there was, a, there was a big movement on, on 9-11 that was more dramatic and more noticeable. But, but on the 84th floor, we would go up to the restaurant at the, at the top of the tower, um, Windows on the World, it was called. Um, you know, it was the, the express elevators uh, we got used to. It was about a one minute ride from the ground floor up to the 78th floor on, on one express ride. Um, and then you, we would find a local elevator to our floor um, which was the 84th in our case. But uh, it was it was just something we got used to. What was nice, the location of it, the World Trade Center, was for me at least, I drove about uh, eight miles to a train station in the morning, got on a train, and then from then on, I was indoors. I wasn't fighting the snow in the winter or, or the rains and so on. You just once I was on that train, I was indoors. It went to the Hoboken train station and then a subway underneath the Hudson river into the trade center directly. And, uh, you know, so I wasn't walking over to wall street or anything like that in, in, in weather. So it was a, it was a really good commute.
1: Tuesday, September 11th, 2001 was a sunny morning. What was your first memory that something was not normal that day?
2: I was, um, typing away at my keyboard, uh, opening emails or looking at spreadsheets, I'm not sure what, I I should explain that although I had been a broker for many years, for the probably the five years prior to that, from about 1996 onward, I was uh, off the phones and I was a dinosaur in that market because it's a young person's game and uh, I was now management, as they say. So I wasn't on the trading floor at at that moment. So I was in my office typing away and this was at 8.46 in the morning when there was this loud sort of double boom and it was a sort of a noticeable, audible sound um, and the lights above me uh, buzzed. I jerked my head upward and then something caught my peripheral vision and I spun around in my chair and just Two or three yards away from me on the on the glass window 84 floors in the air were flames swirling outside the glass as i say 84 floors in the air it's just a strange you know thing to look at a bit of a glare and then two or three seconds later it all dissipated but out in the air were singed papers and and so on i didn't know what it was i thought maybe somebody had hit a weld, uh, had a gas line, you know, a welder or somebody, a couple of floors up and the flames had spilled out of maybe the 86th floor and passed my window. But that, of course, wasn't what happened. It was really, I didn't know at the time, but a plane uh, hit the north side of the north tower, something I couldn't quite see um, in the other building. So it, it was at 846. It was, uh, that's when it all started for us.
1: For our listeners, Mr. Clark's full story can be found on YouTube, and we will post the link, reference that in the biography section of this podcast below. Will you please tell us about what happened next?
2: Yeah. um, I had been trained since the 1993 bombing to be one of the fire safety marshals on our floor. Um, There were about eight of us that had been trained to do that. Most of the fellows were on our technology staff, at least six of other fellows were, um, on our technology staff, they used walkie talkies in their daily task as they were, uh, you know, hooking up a phone line, the Goldman Sachs phone line out in the, in the phone room, they'd be on the walkie talkie to their coworker on the, on the trading floor, making sure it was the right line going into the right turret. Um, so those six fellows were on it with me and one other executive. And my responsibility was to, uh, look after the southwest quadrant, if you like, of our tower. Each building, for, for listeners who might not know, were, was about an acre footprint. It was 208 feet by 208 feet. They were big buildings and um, there was a center core for elevators and bathrooms and so on, but the entire outer perimeter of the building was rentable space. So I had that southwest quadrant that was my responsibility to move people or or give them instructions that sort of thing and so i went out of my office uh, with a flashlight in my hand that the port authority had provided the safety marshals uh, the fire safety wardens and i told everybody to start moving to the center core something's happened i thought upstairs Um, that's not what happened obviously but fortunately um, rather than waiting for further instructions most of the people on our floor and we had about 250 employees on the 84th floor most of the people just headed for elevators and stairs to get out of the building a number of other people maybe 75 to 100 brokers went to the north wall and looked up nine floors to the 93rd floor of the north tower next door and saw this ring of fire around that building on the 93rd floor. And then we realized, well, something had happened obviously next door, it wasn't our building. So there was sort of this feeling of no pressure to get out. But as I say, fortunately with hindsight, most of our people evacuated immediately. Um, But a lot of people just stared upward. One girl came back from the windows all in tears that she had seen somebody jump. She came back to me, and I walked her through the center core back to the ladies' room, and then I went on to my office. I called my dad in Toronto. I called my wife at home, told them something's happened next door if you turn on the TV, but we're okay. And this was maybe be about five minutes to nine. Then an announcement came over the public address system that building two, the South Tower, was uh, secure. There's no need to evacuate. Uh, If you're using the elevators or the stairs, go back to your offices. Everything's fine kind of thing. Um, And then at 9.03, I was talking to a fellow named Bobby Call. I was on the west side of our building when boom, boom, that double explosion again. But this time, it was our building getting hit on the south side. and at about the center point of the fuselage went in around the 78th, 79th floor. So, you know, five or six floors below me. And our building got rocked. I, I said earlier we had a we were used to a one or two inch sway in the heavy winds. The sensation that I had at that moment, whether it's true or not the sensation for me was that the building swayed toward the Hudson River six to eight feet. That's what it felt like. I mean just a horrible thought and, and feeling and it was for those 10 seconds um, during that sway it went, it went one way for five seconds and then it came back to vertical taking five seconds uh, and in those 10 seconds, 10 seconds I am grateful and appreciative to say that was the only 10 seconds of the day that I was in fear. Didn't, I wasn't in control, if you like, didn't know what was going on. Um, well, I still didn't know what was going on for a, a good part of the rest of the story, but I felt this feeling wash over me that, Brian, you're fine, um, you know, you're gonna be okay, whatever it is is gonna work out, that sort of thing. And um, I started leading a group of people off our floor to the stairs. We only went down three floors, when we met a heavy set woman coming up the stairs and she blocked my way. I was leading this group of seven or eight people behind me, if you like, like a snake going down the stairs um, from floor to floor. Um, And she stopped me. She would not let me go past. She said, no, 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 we've got to go higher. There's, There's flames and smoke below. Um, and, and she just was insistent. And in the middle of this, while everybody sort of went bump, bump, bump in behind me, we now had a group of people on the, the landing of the 81st floor. I got distracted because I heard a banging noise inside the 81st floor. And I, I just grabbed the shoulder of the fellow beside me, Ron DeFrancesco, a coworker, and I said, come on, Ron, we got to get this guy. And I don't think Ron knew what I was talking about, actually. But anyway, the, the fire escape door had blown off the wall, um, and we were able to push the drywall back and Ron and I went snuck in if you like on a, on a sideways slip through the crack in the wall um, onto the 81st floor and I have this clear vision of my other co-workers and the heavyset lady and her companion starting up the stairs then they all went up the stairs that day and they all died very sad. Ron and I continued in on the 81st floor he got overcome with smoke about 10 yards onto the floor, but miraculously, and that's the only word I can use, um, miraculously around me was this bubble of fresh air. I can't explain it, um, but it's something I certainly remember. And I sort of sobered up as Ron left me, uh, and Ron went back to the stairs and went up. He eventually did get out, so he survived the day, Um, but the other people that he caught up to all died. So I went in on the 81st floor, now alone, went another five to 10 yards and found this fellow sort of trapped in debris. And with, with a bit of work, we, we freed him up. He came up over a wall and he fell on top of me, actually, because I stood a desk up to look down on him in this pit that he was in. And um, he fell on top of me. He gave me a big kiss and I dusted myself off and shook his hand and introduced myself. You know, I'm Brian. He said, I'm Stanley. We'll, we'll, we'll be brother's life and uh, I was agreeable to that, and off we went to, to the, back to the stairs, and I guess that was the next fateful moment. I fl- put the flashlight down the darkened stairs, the smoke coming up, but I didn't see flames. So I thought, well, I think we can get through smoke. I'm gonna test it. If there's flames, we can come back up. But the only flames we encountered were at about the 78th floor, where the wall was cracked, and there was some flames sort of licking through the cracks, but no intense heat and no inferno at all. Um, we kept going, dug through a lot of debris until about the 74th floor, we came into what I would consider to be almost normal conditions. The lights were on down there. And I sensed that there was fresh air coming from below. No flames. uh, There's an inch of water cascading down the stairs, but nothing other than that. And uh, there's some other little incidents that happened in our descent, but we eventually got to the Bottom floor. Uh, Stanley Premnath was his name. My new best friend. Um, we got to the bottom floor. Stanley is an, uh, uh, an Asian Indian from Guyana in South America, um, and he and I got out of the building this, and ran south. Uh, we got out of the building probably about five to five to ten, and the building collapsed at 9:59. We were a couple of blocks south by then, near Trinity Church, and. We turned around to watch the building we'd just been in just sort of dissolve in eight to ten seconds. It was a bizarre, surreal sight, but uh, you know it happened. And and my I was fortunate at that time. My mind was in an objective mode rather than a subjective mode. I had no thoughts at that time of of anybody dying. You know the people that I had just seen or been with that that died uh, as they were crushed really. Um, that wasn't entering my mind. I was thinking technically and objectively, my gosh, how could this happen? How could a building do that? Um, bizarre. Um, long story made short, I ended up getting a ferry over to Jersey City, um, got home at about 1.15 on a an unscheduled train ride, and there was a big love fest on my front lawn when uh, I arrived home. You know, the house had filled up with some people from our church and some neighbors and so on. And it was, uh, it was certainly good to be home <laughs> and uh, a few tears and so on. But I've been telling my story ever since. I'm just a lucky guy. Our company lost 61 people that day, you know, people that I'd lived with and laughed with for, for decades, really. So that's, that's the, the abbreviated version of my story that day.
1: Wow. One of the few people you and Stanley saw as you descended the building that day was your friend Jose. Do you mind talking about what Jose did that day?
2: Sure. Jose was um, our chief security guard. He was about 32 years old at the time and um, he, he actually started, uh, we had a kitchen. We hired a, a catering company to provide lunches for everybody because if we, we had an on-site, you know, sort of sandwich bar, salad bar, that kind of thing that, that Jose and a couple of other guys managed for us. Um, and Jose was such a good guy that he started staying after his working hours and helping our technology staff move things around and so on. So we ended up hiring him rather than him being part of that food service company. So he was a quite a long-time loyal employee by this point and on our technology staff, and he was – carrying a walkie-talkie that day because they used them in their, in their everyday task and those were the guys we put on our fire safety team because they had, one reason was they had walkie-talkies and they knew everybody. So um, Jose was down the stairs, if you like, helping one of our heavy set gentlemen, I'll be polite, uh, to go lower when Stanley and I got through the debris zone on the 74th floor, we went down a few more stairs and about the 68th floor, coming up the stairs, you know, and there was just Stanley and I in the stairway, I should add that. Stanley and I came through the debris zone um, and uh, coming up the stairs on the 68th floor was Jose Marrero. I said, Jose, where are you going? What are you doing? You know, come on down with us. And Stanley, Stanley and I were like stunned that somebody was coming up the stairs because there was nobody else in the stairs with us. We, we were alone. Everybody had evacuated um, or, or, or gone ahead of us, but we overtook nobody. Nobody overtook us in our whole descent, other than coming up the stairs is Jose. And Jose said, well, I can hear Dave Vera up above. Dave is helping people. I can hear him on the walkie-talkie. Dave is, is helping people. I'm going up to help him. And indeed, Dave Vera had been in my group of people on the 81st floor who had turned around and gone up with that group of people thinking the heavyset lady was correct, we needed to get fresh air above. Um, and uh, that was the last anybody saw of Jose. One week later, um, I fell into a rather, for me, significant dream, one of the, probably the most powerful dream I've ever had. Um, and it was exactly one week later, it was on the Tuesday morning, um, of 918, if you like. And um, in my dream, it was very strange. I dreamt that I was lying in my bed on my back. Now, I always sleep on my right side or my left side, not on my back. But in my dream, I'm lying in my bed with my head up off the pillow, looking at the foot of my bed. And indeed, to the foot of my bed came Jose Marrero in this dream. And he was in this white, blousy shirt. I could only see him from the hips up. Um, there's no tunnel of lights, no flashing lights, anything like that. And I stared at him in disbelief and, and I, I he gave me this big smile. He nodded down. He never said a word in the, the whole encounter. Um, but I got very accusatory. I literally pointed my finger at him and I said, you know, in, in real time, if you like, I was aware of who this person was and he shouldn't be there because I was saying, you know, Jose, you know, you fooled everybody, you know, you, you're, you're not alive, you know, this is amazing, you know, and he didn't say a thing, he just smiled again and nodded down at me, and the message he sent to me, whether, at least this is what I absorbed, was a very casual, you'll figure it out, and I looked at him again, and I sh- shook the cobwebs out of my eyes, and, and, you know, he's gone, he disappeared, and it was so seamless that I sat up in bed from my my head off the pillow position that I found myself in, I sat up looking around the room, where did he go now? And then my alarm went off, beep, beep, beep. And I knew immediately that Jose was had come in a dream, but I knew also that Jose was fine, that my coworkers were fine. And it just gave me this feeling that, the, you know, everything's okay. Um, I was left with sadness that, that he wasn't there for real and that all these other people had died, but... I wasn't angry. I, I, I can't say I was relieved, but I've, I've been comfortable, if you like, ever since.
0: You've lived your life not letting this define who you are and you know haunt you, so to speak. And you just mentioned how in the moment you had all this clarity and you were objectively thinking, getting down, you and Stanley getting out of the towers. How has that mindset helped you moving forward? And what would you like to say to our audience for someone who's been through it and, you know, hasn't let the this define you and how you're moving forward with this.
2: Most of the emotions that I've had or the almost this, um, it, it sometimes sounds cold that I, that I don't care. Well, that's not true at all. I very much care, but it hasn't sort of staggered me in this whole thing. I, I mentioned that as I was watching the Trade Center Tower collapse, Tower 2, the one we just come out of, although that building was hit second it was the first one to collapse um i was thinking objectively not subjectively i wasn't frozen in fear or anything like that and there were a number of other times during that day when when the when our building got hit and the building swayed that dramatic amount uh, you know compared to other times as soon as it stopped that sway as soon as it came to vertical this feeling washed over me brian you're going to be fine when we got through um when i got in, in, on the 81st floor, I had this bubble of fresh air around me that Ron didn't experience. He was overcome with the smoke. I can't explain that. I take no credit for it. But it was real for me. And, and I was relaxed that you'll be okay. Carry on to the, the person that's calling for help. This, the guy making the banging noise and screaming for help turned out to be Stanley. When Stanley and I got back to the stairs, I was relaxed. You know, yeah, let's go down. Let's not run away from something we don't know about. When we got through the debris zone, this feeling washed over me again. You're going to be fine. You're gonna get out of this building unscathed. Um, that that all of that happened to me, and I, like I say, I take no credit for me. And really what it's left me with is I've come to realize that you know you, you shouldn't you shouldn't get stuck in trying to answer unanswerable questions. All these things that well, what if I turn right instead of left? You know, why did this person die and not me? Well, those are those are by definition unanswerable questions. You cannot go and retest the case, so to speak. So you don't really know the answer. So I, I really think it's a waste of time. You're spinning your wheels trying to answer unanswerable questions. And they're, they're, most of them are from the past, basically. So if you don't you know, worry about the past. You can look to the future. That's the way to move forward. But again, you know, you look to the future. When I went to work that day, I had no idea what was going to happen. So I can tell anyone that you cannot predict with any certainty at all what's going to happen in the future. Um, You can make plans. That's a good idea. But gosh, you know, the, the plans may not come to fruition. You don't know. And, um, so there I am not worrying about the past, not trying to answer those unanswerable questions, not really worrying about the future and what it leaves is the present. And that's where I try to live. Every day is a great day. Some are just greater than others. Um, you know, I'm enjoying talking to you guys about this. Uh, it's, it's easily done for me. I don't mind taking the time to do it. Um, it's one of the things I do. I do it a lot, but I certainly don't mind doing it. I I mean, incredibly grateful that I'm that I'm alive. I'm saddened that we lost 61 employees and another, you know, 2,900 people or whatever the total um, count was that day. Senseless deaths, really. But uh, here we are. And, and we've got to, we've got to do what we can, you know, going forward in the future to, to do the right thing. Do what we can. We've got certain gifts. We've got to go use them. Uh, not just for your own benefit, but for for others. I think I've said other times too that you know, you got when you get to the end of the trail, you you got a question. You know, have have you lived well? Have you have you used your gifts? Have you done the right thing in in all circumstances? And also, have you loved well? Do you tell people you love them? Um, it's important that you do that. I mean, if if I hadn't. Come home that day, I think family would regret uh, not having heard that I love them. Um, So it's important that you do that. So those are just, you know, my simple words of advice from this, this individual, from my experience.
1: We understand that your family expected the worst on multiple occasions. What was that moment like when you returned home?
2: After uh, Stanley and I watched the tower fall, we made our way, or I made my way, we we parted ways actually. I made my way to the East River and got a ferry boat uh, that they had moved from the Hudson River around to the East River. And I jumped on this ferry that was bound for Jersey City. And I just knew that was in New Jersey. That's good enough for me at that point. Um, I got to New Jersey, and I ran down the pier and got to the phone at the ticket office and called my wife at home. And uh, that was the first time I was able to communicate. Sorry, the second time I I called. in During my descent from the 31st floor, we got into Oppenheimer's office and Stanley called his wife at work. I called my wife at home and everybody was excited. But my wife told everybody in our house that Brian Brian's okay. He'll be out of the building in two hours because that was my experience when we escape from the 31st floor in 1993. It took that long to get out because everybody was in the stairs. My wife didn't know that the stairs were empty on 9-11 as Stanley and I went down so she had no idea that we got out about 20 minutes later I'm guessing from my phone call on the 31st floor. So when the building fell 20 to 25 minutes after I called her and she thought I'd be two hours Needless to say, she and others in our home were quite distraught. But when I called from Jersey City, it was now 1115, an hour and 15 minutes after I supposedly died, uh, she picked up the phone and when I said, Hi, honey, it's me, she fell on the floor, collapsed on the floor rather, Um, fainted, didn't know, you know, I didn't know that. And a buddy picked up the phone and said, who's this? You know, I I said, it's, it's me, Dave. You know, what are you doing there? That kind of thing. So, I mean, I was clueless. I I had no idea the pain that was, you know, assumed at home. I knew I was fine the whole time. I kept having these rushes of, you know, Brian, you're going to be okay, that sort of thing you know, the optimist coming through, I suppose, in my my psyche. Um, anyway, uh, by the time I got home, it was 11.15, sorry, one fifteen, because I had to, from 11.15, I had to walk up to Hoboken, which took about 45 minutes. Um, I, there's a little side story there. As I walked into the Hoboken train station um, at, at five minutes to noon, actually, the PA announcement was that the 11.30 train had been delayed for you know obvious reasons I guess I don't know what the reason was but it was delayed but it will be boarding and, and departing in five minutes you know the train I wanted so uh, they even held a train for me that day is what I say um, I had a whole lot of things work out um, but it was a, a bit of a milk run it wasn't the express trains that I was used to it made all the stops understandably it was sort of unscheduled they were just getting people home nobody cared you know it was just nice to be there homeward bound as opposed to worrying about what time you got home so it took a while longer um there was a bit of confusion at the train station because i was actually uh, somebody had to drive me to an alternate i'm not going to waste your time with all those details why i i had to get driven to another station but a, a total stranger did that everybody was helping everybody and um by the time i got home it was 1 but they knew at least that i was coming home and as i rounded the corner you know horn blaring <laughs> drove in the driveway and and just like a, a popcorn machine you know bubbling over with fresh freshly popped popcorn our house sort of bubbled over with people coming out of it um and i didn't i just got out of the car and was surrounded by people who were kind of hugging and tugging and kissing and it was it was quite an emotional scene have you and stanley stayed in touch to this day I get asked the question about Stanley. That question: are, are, are you still seeing or hearing Stanley? Do you stay in touch? Every time I give a talk, I get that's the first question that the kids ask. You know, in, in any audience, they all want to know that. Yes is the answer. Um, I talked to Stanley the other day because we were talking about you know how are you doing in this uh, this virus situation, uh, and he had contracted it actually, but he's over it and through it, and he and his wife and his youngest daughter. Um, got through it. They all have, they live together. One of them got it and gave it to the others, I guess, but they're fine. Um, but he has come to one of my daughter's weddings. I've gone to one of his his eldest daughter's weddings. Um, he and I have spoken in each other's church. Now he lives probably an hour and a half drive from where I live. He's, uh, you know, looking at the at the dial on your clock. He I live at 11 o'clock and he's at four o'clock, you know, with Manhattan in the middle. So takes us a while to get around or through Manhattan to each other's homes. But uh, no, we've, we've stayed in touch. We, one of us calls the other one every month or two now. It's a little less frequent than initially, but uh, on anniversaries of any kind, be it wedding anniversaries, birthdays, Christmas, Easter, um, and 9-11. You know, we, we make sure one of us calls the other one. And we've done lots of um, you know, documentaries together and that sort of thing. So, right, yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> We, we, are technically we're blood brothers. That all happened up on the eighty-first floor. Uh, You would not confuse us as brothers if you look at us. You know, he's a, as he says, he's my brown brother, or well done brother, or whatever he. That's him saying that, not me. And uh, he's he's just a great guy. We have a lot of fun together.
1: It's good to hear that he's doing well after struggling with the coronavirus. We're recording this well in advance on 9-11. Do you see any parallels between the difficulty that we faced on 9-11, and now what's happening today with coronavirus?
2: Well, I, I've thought about that, um, and, and this is sort of what bubbles up. And I'm gonna say it from sort of a different perspective that you might think. I, I experienced 9-11 unlike a lot of other people, not just locally, but just across the country or the world. I did not experience the Oklahoma City bombing. I did not experience Katrina. I did not experience the California fires. And I really do think that unless you smell the smoke, you know, in California, unless your feet are wet from Katrina or, or whatever, unless you've really lived it or are near to it, you don't really know what happened that day. You can read about it, you can think you know about it, but you really don't know about it. This virus situation, however, is affecting all of us. Yes, New York City area is a bit of a hotbed in this country, but it has, for the moment, pretty well shut down the country. As we record this, it's starting to loosen up. We can't really predict at this point what it's gonna be like in September when this particular recording airs. But in addition to people not really experiencing 9-11 unless you're around New York City, and, I, and I, I really mean that, or around the Pentagon, you know, you don't really know what it was like. But this coronavirus thing, it's hitting everywhere. And it's not just hitting this country. It's hitting Canada, Australia, Italy, France, you know. So it is a global, global situation, unlike 9-11. So I think that's the biggest difference.
0: I think I speak for all three of us that none of us really fully experienced or really remember what it was. I think what Nathaniel might have been getting at, too, is the camaraderie and all of us coming together and supporting each other. Like the other situations that you mentioned, such as Hurricane Katrina or the California wildfires, it's all of us coming together. Do you see a similar camaraderie in the way that we're all coming together as a nation? Yeah, as, as a nation,
2: you know, yes, we, we're coming together because we're all experiencing it. Around New York City on, after 9-11, I mean, for our company, I'll just give you these examples. Dell Computers said to us, well, first I should start with Prudential Securities. Prudential Securities was one of our customers, but they um, they had a vested interest in us staying in business because they cleared all our securities. Um you know, if we did a deal between Goldman Sachs in New York and Barclays Bank in London, the, the the clearing situation would go through Prudential Securities. So they got some business out of us being in existence. So they were very generous to us. They gave us a full, unoccupied trading floor down near the Staten Island Ferry terminal, terminal one New York Plaza, right on the bottom tip of Manhattan. And they they called us within two or three days of. 9/11 to offer this such that we moved in on the following Monday. 9-11 was a Tuesday. We moved in there on the Monday morning following. Our tech staff um, worked 25-hour days over that weekend to get ready for us to go in there. Dell Computer said, what do you need? You know, we'll, we'll talk about price later, you know, or, or it was almost like you can have whatever you want at cost. I mean, it was that kind of an offer. Um, so, I mean, c- computers and servers and you know the keyboards and all the microphones and everything else that was was there. New York Telephone did all the installations. Um, they gave us staff that we didn't ever hire or anything like that. They just worked for us, getting us ready. And you will find this amazing, but our company was actually generating revenues on the Wednesday following 9-11. In other words, eight days later, we were generating revenues. Now, yes, we had support from our London office, you know, that was five hours, different time zone, but they held a lot of the information and and did a lot of the business in our absence. Um, But after the Y2K preparation, we had learned to take all our uh, recorded phone calls, all our accounting Algorithms, our accounting um, records, and our pricing algorithms—all of that stuff got taken off site every night, fifty miles. So we had all of that ready to go and stored. All we lost, really, were a few hours, two or three hours of trading on nine eleven in the morning. But if you think about who our customers were, there. They're honest people in a, in the wholesale market. So if Barclays was the receiver of securities and Goldman Sachs was the receiver of the cash for those securities, they both communicated with each other and reconstructed the deals, and and so nothing really was lost. Um, everything was recovered, and and that was a so that was just one small area of people coming to air to coming together, but you think of all the fire departments that came from faraway places to help with the the dig if you like at the world trade center site um there was tremendous cooperation i think a lot of that was local i can't say that anybody from you know chicago was really you know helping us in new york city or somebody in houston sort of thing Um, again that's a difference with this Virus situation because Houston and Chicago are having their own experiences and people there locally are helping each other um, But but it, it was an amazing recovery and it wasn't just us There was a lot of companies were were helped by other companies doing good deeds
0: Though we all have a different experience I think a lot of us came together as a nation and view that as a day that we're all together And we all remember those that we lost and another thing that I wanted to ask you is Mike Piazza hitting a home run at the first Mets game back after 9/11, uh, the first home game. A lot of people note that as feeling of getting back to normalcy. Did you have a feeling of getting back to normalcy? Like a specific moment where you felt that you were getting back to, to normalcy?
2: Specifically on that ball game, um, I, I had I, I was smiling before that when President Bush threw the first pitch. You know, a few minutes before that home run, that that I thought, well, that was at Yankee Stadium, right? I guess that pitch of of bushes. Um, I mean, that was a a momentous occasion for me personally. What did I feel? Well, obviously, it was good to be home, uh, but uh, and uh, and our company rallied. I mean, we we got going together. We all got back on the horse together. That was a bit of feeling of normalcy was. Because, you know, in our trading floor of the original 250 people, now we're down to maybe 190 people, that sort of thing. Um, Those 190 people um, were really broken into desk groups, if you like, anywhere from a unit of 10 people to a unit of 30 people. There were that many different markets that we brokered. Um, and, And for each market, those people knew each other really well. And we had 16 counselors on site for two or three months and then eight counselors for two or three months and then four counselors. And then one fellow stayed for the best part of a year. Um, But the fact that uh, let's pick an example of, you know, 20 people brokering uh, repo um, repurchase agreements. Um, Those 20 people knew each other really well. And if Harry you know, kind of broke down, there were quickly five people around him that were feeling good that day that, that supported him. And then the next day, it would be somebody else breaking down, but Harry would now be one of the supporters. So when I saw that happening, and knew it was happening, um, and it also happened in our executive ranks, we, you know, we had good days, days initially, but we were all helping each other. And, and that was certainly a moment that uh, take a while, we didn't know how long. Um, And there were maybe 10 people that just couldn't come back to work ever. Um, They couldn't get on an elevator. They couldn't ride a train. They were sadly, you know, in fear that something was going to happen. So
1: It's hard to imagine trying to go back.
2: Well, you know, I will tell you personally that I have been up the new tower and didn't mind doing it. But I will confess I'd rather not work there. You know, I I wouldn't want to be there every day just thinking, well, what might happen? But on a it's not that I'm a gambler or anything, but on a on a one shot deal, yeah, I'd like to see what this new tower feels like. And so, you know, that that was okay with me to do that. Um, but I I just don't think I would want to be going to that place every day.
1: What struck me as a takeaway from your story. Is the idea of living in the present is that part of the main lesson of your story?
2: More well, yes, but it, it's equally important. Is this you know, especially for kids who who maybe have had some sort of bad experience that they can't figure out? Is is this not dwelling on unanswerable questions? That is. Every bit is important in my mind. I think it's a natural, most people know you can't predict the future. That's not such a a, a mental leap for people. (laughs) I think most people know that. Um, They can look forward to the future. I certainly hope they're optimistic, but they they can't plan it perfectly. Um, But people can, in my opinion, make a conscious decision to ignore unanswerable questions. Once you realize it's unanswerable, what's the point? You know, it's just, and so I I think that's, that's my best advice is that part. Um, And that uh, by by deduction for me, it leaves you in the present and yeah, it's important to, to enjoy life to the fullest, you know, make every day count if you can Um, and, and use your gifts. Everybody's got different gifts, use them for yourself and others. But if I'm to weigh it all, I'll still go back to that. Best advice being, you know, get yourself out of, because I, I think it removes depression and, and, and all those things um, that, that are, it's real, it's happening to people. And I think they could help themselves a lot by realizing what is defined as an unanswerable question and then put it away.
0: I think that you just took a moment that a lot of us can't relate to personally and then wrap it up into a point where, we can see our lives and take lessons away from what you've learned from such a tragic event. And we'd just like to thank you again for joining us today on this podcast.
2: A great pleasure. You're very welcome. And I wish you all well and your listeners. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very
0: much for your time.
2: You're welcome, Colin. Don't don't dwell on those unanswerables, okay?
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much.
2: Bye-bye.